Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. And then we're recorded, right? Oh, and if right, nothing right. bad happens, <laughs> oh fuck, <laughs> it should be okay. Oh, but I can't <laughs> can promise you anything, though. That's all oh. I'm saying, okay? <laughs> oh, shit. Right. Welcome to Chickstree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of it. My name's Annie, and surprise, I'm joined by the delightful Phoebe Wilkins. Hello, 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 hello. Phoebe, I've got some exciting, something exciting to tell you. Yes, please tell. Please do tell. I So last week, for those who have listened to your episode from last week, you did a chick by the name of Lola Montez, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who wowed audiences with her uh, infamous spider dance, and um, she did a little tour of the gold fields of Castlemaine, where I she did, she got where around. She got around, mm-hmm. and it only just occurred to me the other day that we have next to the Theatre Royal, which I think you mentioned also in your story, mm-hmm. we have uh, a restaurant called. Lo- uh, Bistro Lola, and I did some oh, of my wow. own investigating, and it's named after Lola Montez. <gasps> How cool is that? How awesome is that? And, and like, she wasn't around for all that long. She so, wasn't, uh, particularly in Australia, really. Yeah. So to have such an impact that she's got her own restaurante. I named know. After her. Isn't that amazing? So I haven't eaten at Bistro Lola yet, but I will be. And I may even just tell them a little story. Yeah, just drop in a few historical facts. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also the other thing I've been excited to tell you about is I've been listening to Something Rhymes With Purple, which is a mm-hmm. recommendation you gave us last week, I think, on um, a podcast to listen to. Yes. And I'm obsessed, I have to say. Um, and... I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm just and and it's really good because you can go back to just any old episode and listen to mm, choose yep, one. Have to, yep, doesn't have to be. Um, Do, yeah, you know, in order, in any particular order. Exactly. So I've been going back and listening, and um, I wanted to tell you something that I learnt. Because I Please was do. I was fascinated by this little story, and some of our listeners may or may not know where the word teddy bear comes from. Hmm. Yes. And you know, don't you? I do, and only because I listened to this episode not that long ago myself. (laughs) Yeah, so the name Teddy Bear actually comes from, um, well, it has to do with the former US President Theodore Roosevelt, uh, and he was often referred to as Teddy. So the story goes that Teddy Roosevelt was out hunting, it was 1902, and several of the other hunters that he was out with had already killed an animal and Teddy hadn't killed anything yet. So uh, all of his staff were kind of concerned that they'd gone on this hunting trip and poor old Teddy hadn't shot anything. Oh, poor old Ted, poor you know. Poor old Ted. <sighs> so his staff um, decided that they would corner and club 
an American black bear and tie it up to a willow tree so that Teddy could shoot it. But Teddy refused, which I love. I mean, I don't know much about Teddy Roosevelt, but I like that he was that he didn't want mm. to shoot that Teddy. I know. That he didn't want to shoot the bear, I should say. Um, and then from this, there was a cartoon that was drawn of um, a disgusted Roosevelt standing next to the bear that was tied to a tree. And he got a little bit, he got a lot of flack over it. it was, they were kind of like, you know, what kind of man are you if you can't shoot? Yeah, come on, get your guns out. Yeah, yeah, go on. And, <laughs> and then um, a bloke by the name of Morris Mitchum saw the cartoon and he was inspired to create a tiny soft bear cub and call it Teddy's Bear. And it was a huge Aww. success. He went on to c- create his own uh, toy company, this guy, and uh, eventually the S was dropped and it just became Teddy Bear. But I there mean, you go. isn't it isn't it amazing that this one teddy bear, this sacrificial bear, is the reason for all of the teddy bears in the mm. world? So next time you and look at a teddy that, bear, yeah, you think of you think of Teddy Roosevelt. Think of Teddy Roosevelt. Think or of, think of that poor little black black oh, bear tied to a willow tree. And that's not a very long history in the scheme of things either. Like that's only one hundred and twenty. Years ago. Yeah, I was really surprised that that was only from, yeah, 1902. Mm. Here yeah. I am thinking that, like, you know, in the 1800s people got around with teddy bears, but no. No, just your taxidermied pet. No, I don't know. I made that up. <laughs> uh, now, there's been some really big news in the genealogical world. Oh, I know, guys. Like, it's just... Out of control, my industry. Out of control. Oh, you guys are just. You are. It's your. You are having your day in the limelight. We we are. We're swooping in. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not sure if you know much about the Summerton Man. So, yeah, I do. I just will yes, say I've listened. Yes. There's a podcast uh, about it. I've listened to. I think it was an Australian True Crime mm-hmm. podcast about it. Fascinating story. I know, amazing. So they finally discovered his identity. He was um, this unknown man was found dead on a beach in Adelaide in the 40s, Uh, knew nothing about him, all these very strange circumstances. They found a piece of um, paper ripped out of a book. Mm. He was wearing a tie that they were trying to tie in with, you know, something. Yeah, and the poem, wasn't there a poem? Yeah, the poem from... um, Oh, I can't pronounce Armenian? it. Armenian? I can't. Yeah, something or Persian. Persian. Persian, Persian poem, that's it. Persian poem. So, And they thought that he might have been a spy for the Russians during the yeah. Cold War and yep. all of this. And anyway, actually the the guy that made the discovery, so it's not like this has happened overnight. Obviously it's been years in the making, yeah. but DNA testing has come into it. But the guy that actually, one of the the researchers that made the discovery married a woman, they've been married for many years now, that they believed at one point might have been a descendant of his. Right. Yeah. So very, they just, you know, they just happened to be doing some research and they fell in love. And anyway, yeah, she's, no, that's... she's no connection. He's a man from, um, turned out he was a man from Melbourne. Mm. And um, they think that potentially he and his wife had, 
split up and she had gone to South Australia so they thought that maybe that's why he ended up there but no right. yeah no ID nothing to confirm who he was when he yeah. died so I mean there's still lots of work to do and things to discover but it's pretty exciting it's fascinating isn't it because it's been a mystery for so long and just for yeah. them to be able to just track down I mean that's that's what you do right oh, I know I know it's so it's really yeah it's really cool and I think a lot of people just think, oh, they just took the DNA. Because so they exhumed his body at one stage, but they Mm. also, when he died, they took a cast of his face to try and identify him and put it out in the papers, et cetera, and that plaster cast had ripped out a number of hairs. So they had that DNA, which I think they've been using in different aspects over time. But obviously with science now Mm. um, Mm -hmm. to be able to, yeah, make that link and make yeah. that discovery. Absolutely. Yeah, because, yeah, yep. I mean, even once you've got the DNA, then you've got to kind of go, well, okay, how do we sort of now link this to mm. to, to a family history and work yeah, out exactly who, who belongs right. to this? And lots of people think, oh, they'll get their DNA done, put it into these big databases like Ancestry or whatever mm. it might be, mm. and boom, all of these family members will come up, which can happen but quite often like they might be six possible sixth cousins which is so far removed you've got to do a lot of groundwork to be able to nut out who yeah they're connected to or how they're connected yes. and yeah so it's not exact science those sort of um more commercial yeah dna tests fascinating but um yeah, yeah lots of work in the background needs to be done as well now it's time for Phoebe's historical fact. As always, each week Phoebe brings us a historical tidbit that you can take to your next barbecue, your bar mitzvah or belly dancing lesson. Do you like what I did there? With the I li- really do. With the alliteration. <laughs> uh, what you got for us this week? All right. So... Let me just preface this by saying that I know this might be controversial mm. and I hope there's no backlash. Oh, oh I know, geez. I know. But, Annie, I must inform you and our dear listeners that I am not a fan of coffee. What? How I do know. you survive the day? I know, I know. Just, you know, fresh hair. I've got, I've got my coffee right here that is half drunk, but... <laughs> It's, that's incredible to me. So you've never, you never, never, never. No, no, don't like. I don't mind the smell of it, like mm. a freshly brewed coffee. The taste of it, like I don't even like it in chocolates. Nothing. Oh. <clears throat> no. Yuck. What's your no. hot hot drink of choice then? Green tea. Oh. I drink a lot of green tea. Oh, that's why you look so youthful and lovely. <sighs> well, you know, I am sixty five, but I drink sixteen <laughs> cups of green tea a day. <laughs> Right, there it is. There's the there tip, it is. People. It's the elixir of youth. He's the way. Yes, okay. Uh, so all I, right. So, so this is going to have to do with coffee. I'm it's guessing. got to do with coffee. Mm. So did you know that the first coffee seeds arrived in Australia in 1788 aboard the first fleet? Mm. They failed to thrive in our climate, but by the 1870s, something must have been working as they had found a place in the fairly new coffee palaces, which had arrived in Australia a few decades earlier. So coffee palaces Mm. had become popular in Australia as part of the temperance movement, and these establishments aimed to compete with hotels and provide similar amenities and conveniences, but without the booze. What fun is that? Oh, I know. But yeah, isn't that cool? A coffee palace. Like, I love it. I know. Kind of like the... 
the early day kind of cafe, right? But God, coffee palace yeah, sounds so I know. much better. Exactly. So um, just on a side note, the Windsor Hotel in Melbourne yes. was once a coffee palace. Is that, so the, is that yeah. true? Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to check what it was called. Right. But yes, yes. So there you go. And you, next time you walk past, oh, we go for hard tea. Oh, mm. that's lovely. I know, rash, rash. <laughs> uh, so they also often had a wide and varied menu for visitors to choose from, should they feel a little peckish, mm. which was mostly vegetarian, as many in the temperance movement believed that eating meat promoted alcoholism. Mm, and so the temperance it. movement was that mm-hmm. that's kind of like um the um non no alcohol what do they call that prohibition yes. kind of Prob- yes sort yeah. of vibe yeah. so alcohol right. was evil oh yes um, yep. anyone that drank it was evil so they had to they had to rescue you well can i just say there is that there is also a pub in uh south yarra i think called the temperance mm-hmm. yes yeah temperance there hotel so, so that's they, a bit um Ironic. Uh, ironic. That's the word. That's the word. <laughs> In the famous words of Alanis Morissette. <laughs> anyway, let me tell you yeah, yeah. a few of the popular menu items mm, um, for some of these establishments. Mm-hmm. Things like Victorian turtle soup, mutton calves heels pies, oh. sheep tongue a la Milanese, and puddings of pineapple and rhubarb. See, I, so could they also, I could do that. Yeah, I could do a pineapple. Put, I could do a I could do a pud. I could do mm. a pud. I'm, I don't I'm know not about sure the, about the um the hooves. Anything else? No, or the turtle soup. Mm. Turtle. Mm. Is it real turtles? Like they were eating turtles. Well, I believe so. Um, so you, I was watching something, and they back made, in time for dinner. Back in time for dinner. That's the that's what I it was, was on that. I was watching, yes. and they made um because it became quite popular. I think it might have been the turn of the century so mm-hmm. coming into the 20th century mock turtle soup because turtles were harder to come by I suppose or more expensive yeah. and so this mock turtle soup was boiled cow's head and I have never forgotten that I've never forgotten that episode either and they Ooh. were really affected by that episode mm. remember I think that the daughter was really upset yeah. and yeah we've chatted we've chatted to Carol uh Farone on the podcast um a year or so ago and our, she told us all about that episode and just how mm. affected they were of having to do that that part of the show it would have been <gasps> awful oh it would have been awful and I look I'm a I'm a meat eater. I'm not a huge meat eater. Mm. I'm also the daughter of a farmer. So we've always yeah. grown up around meat and, mm-hmm. and and killing our own meat and that sort of thing, which I don't have a problem with, but it's also done humanely. But just the thought of opening like your big soup pot yeah. and just seeing a boiled cow's head. No, I know. it. No, it's not mm. good. No. it's It sounds like revenge to me doesn't it yeah yeah it's a bit it's a bit bunny boiler uh, yes you took the words right out of my mouth <laughs> meatloaf <laughs> oh, just, we are just dropping <laughs> the pop culture references today anyway <laughs> apart from this um victorian turtle soup and mm. other you know mutton calves they also served um tea and coffee mm. and cocoa as well as strawberry wine and gooseberry wine oh. I don't know Sounds what gooseberry wine is. But I assume it'd just be like juice, because obviously temperance. It was non-alcoholic, exactly. And strawberry mm. wine. Imagine what yum that sounds Ooh, like. Yeah, a fire Delicious. engine. 
Um, So these coffees that they served were not your, you know, regular oat milk, skinny cap, latte, half shot, whatever. (laughs) Uh, Would have been a little less fancy. Yes. Yes, but it wasn't until post-World War II when there was a European mass immigration to Australia that modern-day coffee culture really started to grow, particularly Mm in uh, Melbourne. Mm. So there you go. That's my little fact about coffee. And, you know, the... um the first place to have a coffee machine, like a proper coffee um, machine. Oh, like an espresso machine. <laughs> yeah, like a proper coffee machine. Yeah, the first place to have one of those is um, was Pellegrini's in Melbourne. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So apparently they got the first coffee machine, I want to say like the 50s. That would sound about right. Late 40s, 50s. Yeah. And that was the first place that you could go and Mm. you could purchase a uh, European-inspired coffee. An espresso. An espresso. Thank you very much. (laughs) Okay. So today I'm going to take you back to London, England, and we're going all the way back to the mid-17th century. Oh, we're talking 1600s. And look, I'm sure by now our Chicksterians know that when we talk in centuries, we always talk, the the 17th century means we're talking about the 1600s. What idiot came up with that? I've got no idea. I know. (laughs) It's silly, isn't it? It's really silly. It's that whole kind of like the birthday thing. It's like when you Mm. turn one, well, you're one. For that, for the whole year. So you're really turning yes. two because you're going into your it's second, second year. year. Mm. But I don't want to know that because then that adds another year onto my age. Which let's not start philosophizing. Bullshit. Uh, so, <laughs> so this is the time when major changes in philosophy and science are taking place, and this time is often referred to as the scientific revolution. So to set this scene for you a little bit, I'll tell you some things that were happening around this time. Orion, the lovely uh, thing in the sky, the the star constellation is the word I'm looking for, is identified by some guy in France. First English dictionary is published. Isaac Newton creates the first known operational reflecting telescope, hence maybe why they're able to see Orion. Yeah. Um, Bacteria is discovered. And we have the first measurement of light and speed. And my favourite of all um, notable events that happened throughout the 17th century was the first paper is written on the production of sparkling wine. Well, 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 what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. And if, Chickstorians, if you have not listened to the episode on Madame Clicquot, Go back and have a listen. It's fascinating. It's all about the first production of champagne and sparkling wine. So go back and have a listen. And don't be alarmed if you hear a different co-host because that was the before times with Evie. (laughs) All right. Now, Phoebes, tell me, are you a religious person? I am not. I am not a religious person. That's okay. I'm not going to hold that against you. Me neither. I went to Catholic school, did all the things that you're supposed to do, Have still have the Catholic guilt to this day. However, 
I believe in the universe and I believe in nature and something kind of Mm -hmm. being out there, but it's not a guy in the sky. I think you can believe in whatever you would like to believe in and hold that close to your heart, but don't you try and ram it down my throat. So do you know anything about the Quaker religion? (sighs) The only thing I know about Quakers is sure they um there's a type of uh steel cut oats that are the brand quaker in america that's all i could tell you yeah true no yeah that's that's it that's it that's the extent of it do you know everything all my knowledge tends to go back to food (laughs) that's fine i love it that's great Mm. and look i'm not sure that it's uh has anything directly to do with the quaker religion but look Let's just, it may, okay? All right. Well, we're yet to find out. We're yet to find out. Okay, so back in 1656, there was a group of people called the Puritans and these people were common in the area of Boston in the US. So the Puritans were English Protestants uh, from the 16th and 17th century And they were looking to purify the Church of England of Roman Catholic practices. So they were maintaining that the Church of England had not been fully reformed and should become more Protestant. So they're they're the most Protestants of the Protestants that you could could find called the Puritans. Now, in opposition to the Puritans... Uh, were the Quakers who challenged the Puritan beliefs. So it's safe to say that the Puritans disliked the Quakers very much and that's all we need to know is a little bit of context going into the story. Background. A little bit of background. That was just a religious um, lesson for all of us. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Mary Barrett was born in 1610 in London, England, and on October 27, 1633, she married William Dyer. So he was a Puritan. Mary and William emigrated from England to Boston in 1635. At the time, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, that's a very hard word to say. You got it. You got it first time. Had been founded by a group of settlers called Pilgrims and they established their colony with strict Puritan rules. The Puritans had two main concerns. One was community and the other was conformity. Sounds fun. And any party a minute. <laughs> any deviation from either of these ways of life were handled very seriously, from fines and flogging to banishment or even death. Ooh. Party. Anyway, mm. William, um, Mary and William were accepted into the church and were seen as intelligent citizens with above average education and culture. William became a free man of the colony in 1636 and he held many positions of public importance. And I just had to look up kind of what a free man of the colony meant, but it generally mm-hmm. meant that you were not a slave. So, mm. hurrah. Hurrah. I'd imagine that, yeah, he would have had some sort of means as well. Maybe not. Yeah, well, they do. It does say that they were above, um, had above average education and culture. Mm. So they must, maybe they've come from like a a well-to-do family. Yes, yes. So Mary becomes friendly with one of the other wives, a woman by the name of Anne Hutchinson. Anne was a little bit of a rebel. She didn't agree with some aspects of the church, in particular that the Puritans placed heavy restrictions on what women could do which severely restricted their role in society. 
Not much yeah. of a surprise there. No, no. Anne also disliked the fact that the colony was set up to directly tie the church to state, which many people, not just Anne, were starting to question. Anne started to hold her own meetings, which Mary and William often attended. This sort of activity was strictly forbidden under the Puritan law. Women were not allowed to speak in church. They weren't allowed to vote or have any role in government. So Anne was also a huge advocate for, um, for separating church and state and she talked about that a lot in her meetings. So she's being, you know, very rebellious. In 1637, the governor at the time summoned Anne to answer for her crimes of speaking out against the church and speaking poorly of some of the ministers, and she was sentenced to be banished. <gasps> Leave Ooh. this place. Be gone. You are banished. I know, right? Imagine if we brought that back. Just There's a few people I'd like to banish, but anyway, <laughs> but that's another That's another. And day. where would they go? That's the thing. I don't know. Um. Well, keep listening. I'll tell you where these guys yeah, went, but I don't know yeah. where we would send our, our people. Mm. Mm. I'll think about it. Anywho, <laughs> it's like on um, Survivor, they get sent to that um, that island. <laughs> yeah. What is that island called? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> oh, if my words were working today, <laughs> Exile Island. Exile, yeah. Mm. There we go. We could create an Exile Island. We could. Just send all the boys that wronged us. Banish yeah. them. Banished. You are banished. <laughs> Bugger off. Exactly. Amazing. Okay. So as Anne got up to leave after she was banished, Mary stood up, grabbed her hand and walked out with her as a gesture of solidarity. Oh, go Mary. Oh, girl power. Yeah. This caused many people to inquire about who the strange woman was walking hand in hand with a criminal and she mm. became the topic of hot gossip. So because of this and because of this act, she sort of put herself in the public spotlight, which wasn't a very mm. good thing for her at the time because she had been dubbed the mother of a monster. So people found out that she had given birth to a stillborn and the child oh. was quite deformed when she'd given birth. And this had been kept quiet. So, and Anne had actually helped her keep it keep it very quiet mm -hmm. because the Puritans would see this as a very bad sign from God. So this didn't really help Mary's cause uh, from very early on. So now that Mary had uh, come to the attention of the governor, he requested that the body of the baby be exhumed so that he could <gasps> study it. I oh, know. how awful. And the way the baby was described um, was overly exaggerated and the baby was actually made to sound demonic, but um, mm. it probably was just born, well, it was born born just with some form of birth deformity, mm. but it was, mm. yeah, it was made to sound like it was the child of a demon. Yeah, and she's already mourning and gone through this traumatic experience and then absolutely. to do that. I know, I know, absolutely. Oh. And and also that her friend Anne had helped her keep it quiet because they knew that it would mm. it would cause this kind of um response. So although they were never officially banished, um, they weren't very popular, uh, William and um and Mary. So they decide that they're gonna leave Massachusetts. And go to Rhode Island. So you know how I was talking about where do they send all these people oh, that are banished? Yes. Well, Rhode Island was actually founded in 1636 by other 
uh, banished or outcast Puritans. Rhode Island is also known as Shelter Island and it was actually mm. where a lot of the people, the Puritans and the people who were banished would, would go to shelter. Uh, Mary and William would stay in Rhode Island for more than a decade. William uh, becomes heavily involved in politics. He's quite an upstanding member of the community. And Mary decides to travel back to England and she stays back in England for several years, actually. Uh, And it's during this time that Mary converts to Quakerism. So Quakers believe that all people have access to the inner light of direct communion with God. They believe in the spiritual equality of all people. Quakers wanted their religious message heard far and wide and even in England they were often faced with persecution. So it was common for them to leave England and travel elsewhere to spread Mm. the word of Quakerism. On a mission. They're on a mission, yes, Mm. quite evangelistic. Mm. Um, So Mary, for some reason, thinks that it's a great idea to go back to Boston and to talk about uh, Quakerism. I think because she probably knew from Anne's early meetings that there was quite a little bit of an under kind of current of people starting to question Puritism. So she's thinking, right, I'm going to go back there. But the Puritans of Boston were not happy. The presence of the Quakers prompted a swift response from the Puritan government and laws were created imposing fines on ships that brought Quakers to Boston. Quakers themselves would be subject to prison or they would be whipped um, and forced to labour in houses of correction. Oh, how awful. Yeah. So even knowing this, Mary decides that she's going to go to Boston on her way home to visit William, Going, she's going back to Rhode Island. So mm-hmm. she's like, I'm just going to stop in on the way. Just pop just over just for do a, a Quick stop in, say g'day, talk about being a Quaker. Let's see how that goes down. She And she knows that it's not a great idea already because mm. of the, you know, the laws that were, that had the Puritans had um had, had imposed. So she is joined by two fellow Quakers, William Robinson and Marmaduke Stevenson. Marmaduke. Marmaduke. What a name. I know, Marmaduke. <gasps> is that great? Isn't that great? What do you think um, he got called for sure? What do you think his nickname was? Dookie. Duke. I don't think Mama, maybe ma- Mams. 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 Hey, Mams. Dookie. I like Dookie. Did you get us a dairy? <laughs> So Mary um, says, who cares anyway, doesn't, doesn't care about, you know, the, the laws and that these Puritans are going to get angry and she b- begins preaching her Quaker views and she's promptly imprisoned and she stay, oh. spends two months in prison. And at some point she's able to get a letter to her husband telling him uh, where she is. And William Dyer, her husband, goes immediately to Boston. He meets with the then governor and demands his wife be released. The governor, knowing of William's position in Rhode Island, agrees. However, So if he, if he hadn't have been, you know, have a high up position, she would have languished there in ab- Prison. Absolutely, absolutely. It is only because he was part of the political circle in Rhode mm. Island. Um, mm. So Mary's instructed to leave the colony immediately and she couldn't speak to anyone on her way out. Now, as a consequence of the influx of Quakers, the then governor passed further laws persecuting Quakers in Massachusetts. So he's starting to freak out a little bit. 
Mm. So Quaker men preaching in the Commonwealth would have their ears cut off, their tongues pierced with hot iron, and women would receive lashings for the same offence. So they're not fucking around. No. No. Oh, I just, oh. I know. Oh. The tongue, the tongue thing. Yeah. So two years later in 1659 when the two Quaker men she had travelled with from England are jailed again along with several other Quakers, Mary decides to go to Boston to visit them in jail. Oh, my goodness. So she's gone back. She's She's been imprisoned. The husband's come and rescued her. They've gone back to Rhode Island. She hears that her mates are back in jail, so she goes back to Boston. So Mary is uh, arrested upon entry and then um, they're all held in prison for two months without bail. Upon their release, they are all again banished from the colony under the penalty of death. But Robinson and Stevenson refused to leave. Uh, Mary, however, returns to Rhode Island. When Mary discovers that again her friends are imprisoned and sentenced, Mary feels called upon to go back to Boston in support of her friends. Knowing full well that it meant giving up her own life, Mary still chooses to go back to Boston. And again, she's arrested and imprisoned with Robinson and Stevenson. What I mean, a good mate. What a bloody good mate. I tell you what. She's the one holding your hair back, you know. Absolutely. In the club She's there. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And also, you know, it's not just like she's received a text message or a phone call mm. going, oh, you know, we're back in jail again. Like that would have been months of, you know, communication and then she's got to, mm. she's not just going to get on a plane and fly, she's, you know, no, hop on a that's boat. Right. And money. So she must have had money because it costs, yeah. to, you know, for a passage as well. But, yeah, the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. So she's arrested again. They're all sentenced to banishment upon pain of death. And this meant Ooh. that if they ever returned again after they were banished, that they would be executed. But that's not going to stop Mary because in October of that year, Mary returns to Boston again to visit oh. another imprisoned friend. Mary. And it doesn't say that Robinson and Stevenson um, had come with her, but maybe they didn't leave because, again, mm. they're all sentenced, but they this time they're all sentenced to death. Oh, so on October 27, Mary Robinson and Stevenson were led to the Boston Neck to meet their end. Mary walked between the younger men hand in hand, just as, she, just as she'd done with Anne Hutchinson. And this was, I mean, you know, can you imagine? The crowds mm. were just mm. absolutely appalled that a woman was walking hand in hand with not one but two men to whom she yep. was not married. Um, So she's making a statement just even in that, doing that small act. Uh, William Robinson was hanged first, followed immediately by Marmaduke Stevenson. When it came to Mary's turn, she was granted a last-minute reprieve, but she refused to climb down from the scaffold until the law banning Quakers was changed. Mary Dye was forcefully returned to her cell uh, where she penned a letter refusing to accept her reprieve. 
she felt that she had already given her life for the cause of repealing anti-Quaker laws. So she thought at this point she really had nothing left to lose. Mm. Um, She was later removed from Boston by force and then she went to live in New York for a winter. Oh, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Well, look, I think it sounds Mm. better than Boston. Not long into her stay in New York, she caught wind of a letter that's circulating uh, from the Puritans. The letter was all about justifying the persecution of Quakers and it also explained how they had been so generous in pardoning Mary Dyer. This enraged Mary and she felt they were downplaying the unjust murders. So there's only one thing Mary knows how to do and that is return to Boston. She's back. She's back. Mary's arrested once again upon her arrival in Boston, uh, where she again stands trial, and uh, she pleads for the unjust laws to be repealed. And again, she is sentenced to death. On June the 1st, 1660, Mary Dyer was once again led to the Boston Neck. She was hung in the same fashion as other Quakers before her and was buried in an unmarked grave. One more Quaker would be hung after Mary and following this last death, King Charles II demanded an end to the hangings. So she got there in the end. She got what she Mm. wanted in the end, but Mm. she um, she did have to die for it. Yeah. So the legend of Mary Dyer reminds us of the importance of individual liberties, including freedom of religion, and is about the power of solidarity and kinship. Although she knew that each time she would return to Boston, she would be arrested with the possibility of being sentenced to death, she went anyway to support her friends and her cause, and she was willing to give her life to expose the injustice. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, I think I counted, what, six times she returns? Yeah. With no fear. I mean, well, who's who's to say, but Mm. um, still going, knowing knowing full well that when she goes she's going to either be arrested, banished or sentenced to death Mm. um, or all three. And then finally it ends ends up happening, but she's not, it's nothing stopping her. It's just remarkable, you know. Mm-hmm. A bronze statue of her by Quaker sculptor Sylvia Shaw Judson stands in front of the Massachusetts State Capitol in Boston. A copy stands in the front of the Friends Centre in downtown Philadelphia and another in the front of Stout Meeting House at Earlham Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. So she's got three statues, which is amazing because we know, Mm -hmm. and if you guys have been listening for a while, you'll know that there's not many statues of women. Women don't get not no. Women don't get no. a statue, particularly in Australia. There's more statues of animals than there are of women. Is that a fact? That is a fact. Yes, yes, it is. Bloody egg! I know. Ridiculous. Now, apparently, the ghost of Mary Anning can be witnessed around Boston Common with reports of a woman in colonial or Puritan era dress wandering around, uh, often weeping. So that is the incredibly sad but selfless story of Mary Dyer and how her love for humanity was far greater than the love for herself. Very courageous, Mary. Isn't that incredible? She had a strong belief system. 
I know. And mm. and I, I mean I don't I don't know too much about Quakers now or the Puritans, but I see I feel like the Quakers have gone on and survived. Mm. Because I feel like the Quakers are still around, but yeah, the Puritans think- you don't hear so much mm. about. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could be right in saying that. I feel like I actually have a friend I used to work with that was, her family were Quakers. She spent a lot of time in America. Oh, there you go. There you I'm go. Look into that more. Mm. Have a little look into that more. And if any, yeah. if there's any listeners who are Quakers, we'd love to know if you know about Mary, because um, yeah, ultimately she did. She sacrificed her life for standing up for something that that she believed in, which is um, mm. which is incredible. So, thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mary. Uh, We'll be back next week with another episode of Chickstree and we look forward to getting in your ears then. Ciao. 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 Ciao.